You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 30 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Pouchotts. Uh, because I chose to record this show on an Easter week, I'm afraid the panel is small in number, but nonetheless high in quality. So I am joined by Antonio Rosario from Switch to Manual. Hi, Antonio. Hey, Bart. How are you? I am doing just fine. I am. There's two giant big Easter eggs downstairs, and it is very, very difficult not to just go and eat them now. But I'm, I'm surviving. <laughs> Twelve more hours, and I can eat them. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and also joining me from Kentucky, we have Conrad from Conrad.photo. Hi, Conrad. Hi, Bart. Hi, Antonio. How are you guys doing? We're good. Pretty so, good, Conrad. Our topic for today, I thought, I, is one I've been sort of keeping in the back burner because it's one of my favorite things to talk about, but I, I sort of wanted to save it for a while, is the, con- the perhaps controversial topic of HDR and tone mapping. We're really dealing with the fact that our cameras have a different dynamic range to our eyeballs, which is, I think, really what it all comes down to. It's a real light subject, part. Oh, yeah, totally. Not going to get into <laughs> any trouble whatsoever here. This will be fine. <laughs> so I guess the first, the first place to start is, so I, I do this a lot. I, I tone map an awful lot of my images, and I do full HDRs from time to time. So, Conrad, is this a technique you use a lot sometimes, never? Well, tone, tone mapping, yes, quite a lot. And for that pur- purpose, I mostly shoot in RAW uh, because that's the way to get most of the details from either highlights or shadows. Uh, but tone mapping, yes, especially when I, when I travel and I have a lot of sky in my images, that's, that's what, I, uh, what I do, yeah. And okay. from time to time, HDR as well. Okay, so I guess that sounds quite similar to me then. A lot of tone mapping, some HDR. Okay. Yeah, uh, well, when I say tone, tone mapping, is, well, in my case, at least my understanding is that and how I use it, is that uh, when I have one single image and I you know, work with the highlights and shadow slider, you know, HDRs, when I, when I talk about HDR, it's when I combine two or more images into, into one image. Okay, well then... Not quite the same, because when I talk about tone mapping, I mean using the HDR process on a single RAW, which is actually a high dynamic range image because it has more than 8 bits. So yeah, I think we'll get back to that in a sec. So yeah, so when I do tone mapping, I'm, I'm doing more than just those sliders. I'm taking it actually through an HDR workflow, even though it's only one photo. And Antonio, do you play around at this little pond? Not at all, no. Not at all? What? <laughs> I really? You wrote the notes for this, and I'm like, oh, my God, HDR tone mapping. Uh, no, I, I, um, I, your thing? I generally do not. But I do uh, similar processes in their certain, certain circumstances, which will fit with the discussion. Okay, but well, maybe, maybe we should lay well, some I'm, foundation. Yeah. So clarify some terms might be a good way to start this conversation. So... As far as I'm concerned, anything that has more than 8 bits of data in it is a high dynamic range image because 8 bits is all we can see in a JPEG. So any more than that, it is clearly high. Um, Right? So far, I don't think I've been too controversial. 
most of our cameras have the the sensors are eleven or twelve bits, which means that you have three or four bits of extra data that won't fit in a JPEG. Uh, if you keep the raw, well, then you keep that data, which makes it available to you for pulling into your images. So that means that raw files are HDR. So not very H, but they are HDR. And obviously, the other way to get lots, lots, lots more bits of data is to take lots of images. So underexposed by three stops, underexposed by a stop and a half, exposed correctly, overexposed by a stop and a half, overexposed by three stops. You now have five images, and you now have a lot of data with you know a, a very, very big distance between the darkest thing that is properly captured and the brightest thing that is properly captured. So a really big dynamic range. I don't think I've gone off the rails yet. Anyone that disagree with that description? Not I will. I will agree. Okay. So oh, then, wow. right? So now you have an image that has more data than you can see. So obviously, that's not much good to you. So you want to get the data into your images, and that's where this whole tone mapping, HDR, and all of these techniques come in. So. Like you were describing, Conrad, the very simplest thing to do is to actually use the tools that are built into all of our photo editors to reach into that extra pool of data and pull some of it into range. So by brightening the shadows, but instead of making up the data, actually pulling in real data that's off the edge of the image, so to speak, or darkening the highlights by, again, pulling real data that's at a range the other way and pulling that into your little 8-bit window where you can actually see. So that is a form of tone mapping, right? You're, you're, you're fitting more than 8 bits of data into an 8-bit JPEG. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just add that just general, generally, for mm-hmm. simplicity's sake, converting any raw file to a JPEG file, I would think, is considered tone mapping. Well, right? a lot of the raw because... processors, yeah, they don't just do a linear, let's take the 12 bits, slice out 8, and throw the rest away. They're a little bit cleverer than that. They have some sort of non-linear algorithm that says, you know, on the dark end, don't take exactly what should be the dark end, mudge it a bit, and so forth. So, yeah, you're right. I think most raw processors right. do some kind of HDR to make the images, to sort of attempt to make the images look more natural. So, but since every digital camera starts with a raw file... Um, mm-hmm regardless of what kind of camera it is. And it's in order to present the image to the person who's viewing it in a JPEG format, which is the only way we can see the image, all cameras are essentially tone mapping their, their raw data to a JPEG. So kind of everybody who's using a digital camera is having their image tone mapped. Yeah, but it may be very, very naive tone mapping. Depending it, on the yeah, camera, even still, yeah. Very, very naive. Like it could just right, right. be taking There's... the middle eight bits and throwing all the rest away. Right, and there's something I'll get into a little bit later about about that, but I'm just saying sort of a general thing. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't go over people's heads. I think tone mapping is basically taking all those bits, what you said before, all this information and converting it into something that we can see because all of our devices cannot see the raw files. All that data has to be converted into something that we can actually see. Actually, I probably should have started with the problem to be solved. I can hear Alison Sheridan screaming into her iPod at the moment. <laughs> Because that, that's probably actually the most natural place to start instead of with definitions, really, isn't it? So you, as a human being, walk out into the world with your eyeballs and you look around and you can see quite a big range from the darkest thing you can see to the brightest thing you can see. And you then, as a human being, bring your camera with you and you point it at that same universe and you press the shutter and you look at the picture and it's not the same. And I, I remember vividly the day I discovered this. So Ireland is 
surprisingly far north, given that we don't have a lot of snow, because the Gulf Stream warms us up completely artificially. I'm at 54 degrees north, which means that in summer, the sun actually is never high. In, or sorry, in winter, the sun is never high in the sky here. It is, you know, 30 degrees up or so, which means that we have giganto long shadows for like six months of the year. Even at noon, you have big, long shadows. And when you're a human being, they don't look terribly annoying. You can see detail in those shadows, so they don't really bother you. Until I got my first digital camera and went outside and pressed the shutter. And I was like, oh my god, why is the universe full of these black stripes with no information in them? That's not what I saw. And that's because the camera's dynamic range is less than my eyeball's dynamic range. So that is ultimately the problem to be solved. I, I want to pause you for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hesitate to call it a problem. You can work around. I, I would. Well, a problem sounds like something that's bad that needs to be fixed. So I, I, I want to, huh? Issue? I mean, I want to push you challenge? against that a little bit. Well, you know, you're saying that limitation. You know, you're saying well, limitation is okay, but well, a problem means yeah, a problem means to me something that is broken that needs fixing, and it's just um, it almost sounds like a negative thing. And no pun intended, but I, I just wanted for the audience to say, you know, just because shadows are blocked up doesn't necessarily mean a problem. I'll get into that later, too. Well, no, <laughs> actually, that's a very fair point. It's a, limit, a limitation, yes, is, is a, I think, a better way to say that. Yeah, and it's a limitation you've got to choose. You've got to choose your approach. So either you work with the limitation, and I think the extreme example of working with it is a silhouette. It's almost never in the real world that the world looks like a silhouette, but you can choose to use the camera's limited dynamic range to turn the universe into a silhouette. So that's working with the camera instead of against it, whereas trying to make the camera see the way your eye sees is arguably fighting with the camera, but it's a fight I've I've done a lot. <laughs> I quite like the results. I think there is also another level to it because you know we we have you have to mention that a camera has to make a decision about the exposure, the right exposure, and you know of course it it depends if if you have if if what kind of decision it will make. If it makes the decision to expose in the highlights, then of course uh, you will have very dark shadows, and if it does the opposite, then you will have overblown. Uh, bright spots and you know the camera makes a decision if you let it to make a decision but you can also make a decision yourself and set set the exposure to to whatever you want to have in the image Hmm. yeah i think actually so the irish winter shadows are one place i discovered that i need to be careful about dynamic range and there's there's an exact counter image or an exact counterpoint to that which is the irish summer where we are very prone to having the world's prettiest cotton bud clouds Fluffy white clouds with lots of intricate detail, which most cameras, when set to automatic, turn into solid blobs of white with no detail whatsoever. And they look weird. Mm-hmm. Also, can I add that this problem did not necessarily start with digital. No. Uh, it's pretty much been around since the beginning of photography. That is... The first... I could have asked you to do me a nicer segue. I want to, the first link I'm going <laughs> to stick into the show notes is a sort of a pseudo-essay I wrote back in 2011 so that's how long i've been talking about this stuff but it starts back in 1865 uh, when gustave Legray decided that he was fed up of having his skies blown out 
and decided to take one photograph of the sea and one photograph of the fluffy clouds above it and mush the two negatives into one single final printed image, which he called the Great Wave. So, arguably, that's an HDR photo from 1865. He could have just used a neutral density filter. <laughs> like a half graded. I don't know if filter. they had a camera store that he could wander into. No, I just wonder. It's like, would it have been easier? I mean, that was, a, that was one way for him to solve the problem. Another way to solve the problem, especially with a landscape picture, would have been to figure out some way to darken the top part of this, the image, the sky, with something in front of the lens. And, you know, frankly, the technical part of that, I'm sure they had have you, something in, have with you glass that could Edward have done that. Edward Moybridge's Skyshade. I've heard of Moybridge, but I haven't heard of his Skyshade. Right, so imagine, you know the way a comb has lots of very fine teeth? Well, imagine putting them right next to each other and having each one individually adjustable. He Mm. would have this device and he would pick his mountain and he would line all the pins of his comb up to match exactly the shape of the mountain, put that into (laughs) the film plane and leave it there for half his exposure and then pull it out for the other half of his exposure and therefore he would darken the sky. There you go. That's brilliant. Isn't it just genius? It's a little bit fiddly, it is. obviously, but genius. But it is. It's, a, it's another way to solve that issue. Um, yeah. And a lot of the time back then, the, the film plates were... And it can, uh, You're going to have to forgive me if I get this wrong, because mm-hmm. it's, I'm a little spaced out right now, but the were um, overly sensitive to blue light. Yes. That, am I getting that right? I don't so know the what skies... the actual word is, but I know what it wasn't. It wasn't panchromatic. Panchromatic, right. And because of the oversensitivity to blue light, the skies tended to look white or gray or washed out, which is why when you look at those, a lot of those pictures from the Civil War, it looks like they were shot on gray days. Um, but yeah. often you just don't see the clouds in the, in the sky. But anyway... Once yeah. they figure that problem out, then they could then they could uh, then the film pl- the film would be able to capture some detail in the sky because it would be um, the sensitive sensitivity to the blue light would have been lessened. Yeah, it took them a long time to get the chemistry right so that they could have a film emulsion that was equally sensitive to the three primary colors. Yeah, and if I can dive into film a little bit because mm-hmm. we're talking about high dynamic range. Uh, a lot of film stocks, even modern films, were just not able to handle the range that current digital cameras have and even our eyeballs have. But there were some film stocks that were designed uh, with a very low contrast, which simulated uh, high dynamic range in some way. It would create a flat image. And one of them was what was considered a duplicating film that Kodak produced so that you oh. could take a... Uh, an image and duplicate it onto this piece of film. And if you if you actually duplicated film onto another piece of regular film, the contrast would build up during the duplication. Sort of like if you photocopy another photocopy, it, it tends yeah. to degrade image. But Kodak made a very very low low ISO, low contrast film stock, which you could then duplicate uh, an image to, and it would retain a good chunk of the tones. So in some sense, that could have been used as... I don't think you could buy that film and just shoot with it outside. Maybe you could. Well, I, I never really saw anybody who did it. If it's low ISO, I'm imagining it would have taken a while. Yeah, but um, that film would have had a slightly 
larger dynamic range than the film that it was duplicating. So yeah. anyway, a little bit of well, film trivia. If you want to go back to more chemistry, then um, before the Russian Revolution and the stock, the world's stocks of platinum died away, there was actually an entire photographic process that used platinum instead of silver, and it had these like spectacular dynamic ranges that so people would use them for photographing the insides of cathedrals, which is obviously mm. a place with light streaming in and dark shadows, and you could actually capture that full dynamic range in a single exposure using. Platinum, platinum instead of silver, so a platino type instead of a regular silver emulsion, which is really rather cool. But apparently, the most of the world's platinum is in Russia, and when the Russian Revolution happened, the supplies ran out. I guess oh. they stopped using it for photography and started using it for other things. Yeah, so this goes back a long way. I guess that's what we're yeah. saying. Yeah, and it's a, it's dealing with the limitations. Like what you were saying is that. You're used to looking at the world with your eyes, and you see it a certain way. And then, when you want to reproduce it uh, using these tools, in case film or digital, it, you're not going to be able to do that. And Conrad, you were also saying you, you're you saying the camera makes decisions, but in a sense, you're making a decision on what you want to show. And high dynamic range photography is sort of a way for you to not have to compromise as much. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so to bring it to actual to, to the to, to true tone mapping, so using the sliders to bring in more shadows and highlights is sort of pseudo tone mapping, but sort of the the full bells and whistles tone mapping is a really complicated mathematical algorithm which has lots of inputs, which is why an HDR program will have lots of sliders. Each of those sliders is controlling one of the inputs to the mathematical formula. And what it basically does is it decides what exposure to set each pixel at based on the value of the pixel and the value of all the pixels close to it. So that on average, what it ends up doing is regions regions within the photo that are on average high are darkened and regions that are on average dark are brightened. But of course, where the regions meet, this algorithm can have very horrible side effects and cause nasty ghosting and stuff. So then you have more sort of input to the formula that says well you should try to reduce the ghosting by this much and you should you know so all of these things to try sort of balance it all out and the hope is when you're all done what you end up with is an image that looks like your eyes saw it maybe unless you decide to use the exact same mathematics for the purpose of intentionally making a photo that looks like it was from another planet and you can do that because it's just some math so if you throw all the sliders one way you'll get a completely different result so if you spend ages tweaking them to make them look realistic and I guess both are equally as valid I, I, I would argue the realistic look well yeah see this is where we hit the <laughs> controversy right this, this is the bit that, that, that makes people's heads explode I, you know when I first saw HDR pictures not that long ago I mean relative to my photography career Mm-hmm. I was really excited by them because it was a really interesting look, especially when people were going overboard with them. And anybody who knows about HDR knows what overboard means now. But I think when it first when it first sort of started making its appearance, people were doing overboard because it was a way to get noticed. It was like this is this is this cool thing that we've discovered, and look what we can do with it. Yeah. And I remember uh, going through my Flickr feed and seeing all this stuff and saying, what is this? This looks really cool. And, you know, and favoriting a lot of these pictures, especially a lot of the more interiors or buildings or something like that that were very interesting. 
and um, I liked it a lot. And then after a while, it over time, I've gotten to be okay. Well, that's you know enough of that already, and let's move on to something else. And so I had found that style that we're talking about, or the overboard style, is something that was a bit of a a fad. But I guess it caught on for some people, and and I've seen some of those pictures even now that I was like, okay, well that works, you know, or uh, but oftentimes it 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 doesn't work, and people are are doing it very much so like on iPhone photography um, because now there are these little filters that can simulate that look and whatnot and. Uh, I've, i I'm very discerning now when I see something that's called an HDR picture, I'm looking at it, uh, with an eyeball towards being very critical, uh, and seeing if there's a reason, a reason for that to happen, at least in the extreme senses. So, yeah. yeah, I looked at my very first, well, I think one of my very first HDRs from a few years ago, mm-hmm. just last week. <laughs> and I didn't know if I supposed to cry or laugh. <laughs> it was one of those overboard, you know. It was, yeah. It, I, it's something definitely I wouldn't, I wouldn't post or share, or even hopefully create these days anymore. Uh, but I agreed. Like the, the beginning, it was completely something new, something that uh, looked different. And I think that that was uh, what was, you know, really nice about it. That was something weird and, and different that people shared and liked. Yeah, I, I think some people thought that you could turn a bad photo into a good into a good photo by just cranking it through some HDR. But actually, you know, a good photo, like a good HDR photo, has to be a good photo first. Like if you can't compose a shot, if you can't focus it, HDR is not going to save you. And I think that's where things went wrong because people just took the most boring, uninspired, uninteresting shots, cranked up the sliders, and went, "Look, it's art." And most of us went, "No, it isn't." Uh huh. There used to be something that people were doing a while back with Polaroid film, uh, doing what was called Polaroid transfers. So it was a way to take the Polaroid and put it um, onto a wet piece of paper, and then you peel the emulsion off, and you create a new you know, piece of art. And it was nice up to a certain point, and then it was like, okay, enough already with this. But yeah. did it work? Did the process work? I mean, it wasn't just enough to say, well, I'm going to take this Polaroid and put it on a piece of watercolor paper, and now I've got, you know, an art piece because it's on paper, did it work or did it not? And and I, I kind of think of HDR in, in a similar vein. Is it is it this thing that, like you said, does it work as a photograph? It needs to work as a photograph first before, you know, did that technique need to be used to create that picture? Uh, or are you are you trying to say something by doing this this technique? Yeah. So my personal feeling on this is that I think the real skill in HDR is in making it, in using it as a technique to deal with a limited dynamic range. And as far as I'm concerned, if I didn't label them as being HDRs, I would like people not to be, not to know. I would like people to just look at it and go, that's a really nice photograph, and not go, oh, that's a really nice HDR. To me, the skill is in subtlety. Yeah. I mean, you're, as you're saying that, and you, you just put a picture up uh, of a train into the show notes for people. Yeah. So this is this is a photo and that I actually sold recently. Um, yeah, really. Congratulations. Cool. Yeah. So, nice. and I realized that of all of the photos I have sold on Canvas, they are 100% HDR processed because yeah. one of the things you can do with HDR processing is you can 
it's very good for bringing out the textures and for bringing out the colours that are very easily drowned out in the highlights and the shadows and if you put something on canvas texture and colour work really nicely on canvas so the two canvases I've sold recently were both HDRs anyway so I'll stick this one in the show notes it's the steam train which was taken as the sun was very low in the sky on a December evening which means that out of the camera like it was basically mostly a silhouette like there was zero yeah. detail in the ballast. There was zero detail on which, you know, anything in shadow was just gone, basically. Yeah. Can I can I say, though, in, in this sense, this shot you asked in the note, in the uh, chat mm-hmm. if it was HDR or not. And I was like, I said, well, you might have used an HDR process, but it doesn't seem like an HDR picture. I would also say in that same vein, I wouldn't call this an icon picture. You know, it's like there's a certain point where you're talking that, okay, you used HDR processing to get this image that you sold and using for canvases, whatever, like, and you used a Nikon and you used a lens and you used a certain tripod and none of that really matters in this shot. You know, to me, the HDR would fit in, it'd be that, you know, for pixel peepers or people like us who want to know, well, how did you make that? What was the shutter speed that, what was the aperture you used, you know? But the end result doesn't seem to me to say anything more than a great shot of a train in sunset, and it's a beautiful picture. And who cares if it's HDR, Nikon, you know, you know, uh, Tenba bag that you used or SanDisk card? Who cares? Well, I think that was actually the nicest thing you could have said, Antonio, because that's exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly how I feel. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to make an HDR picture. I'm trying to make a picture. And the technique I find to give me the look I want is often an HDR technique of some sort, usually tone mapping a raw. Yeah, and this certainly does not look like one of those pictures I was talking about before where the thing looks a little, you know, overcooked. <laughs> and even if you actually overcooked this picture, it'd be curious to see what it would look like. It might be a technique that worked with this subject matter. And in that case, I might call it an HDR picture because the technique is so obvious. Um but you, you didn't, and it's not maybe not appropriate for the shot. And okay, great. You used HDR. You used Lightroom to process it. Who cares? It's a nice picture. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that is the, the point I'm hoping to make is that, you know, if you're put off by, if you're, if you think that those, if you don't like the HDR look in inverted commas, that doesn't mean that the HDR process isn't for you. Because they don't have to look right. like that. I think that's the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> Although I do see you tagged at HDR. <laughs> I did because I took this back in 2009 when I was much more of a crusader yeah. on this topic. Yeah. I felt it was my duty to make the point that it was an HDR so that people would stop saying that all HDRs look horrible. Yeah, but you didn't tag Nikon or SanDisk or Tenba Bag or well, no, Manfrotto Tripod. data is for? It says Nikon D4. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you that it doesn't... Your XF data doesn't say Lightroom. It doesn't say... Uh, Tenba doesn't say SanDisk. Why wouldn't you put that stuff in there, too? You know, just to be a pain in the butt here. (laughs) Fair point. Fair point. I mean, uh, yeah, you you show how good a SanDisk card captures data and doesn't, you know, degrade it. I don't know. I'm just, it's interesting. I just noticed that. So, but yeah, Yeah. okay. So you were an advocate and that's great. All right. Yeah, I've calmed down a bit since. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, the other, th- the other thing I use this technique for a lot is for making my silhouettes not silhouette which sounds really weird when you say it like that. So, 
a silhouette that still has a little bit of detail left. Hmm. Why, why do you do that? Because I like that look. Um, I give you... I, hang on, I'll pop another example if you show this. <laughs> it, this is just... I, maybe I'm weird, but I really like this sort of near silhouette look. Mm-hmm. And the only way I've found to produce this kind of look is with HDR style processes because mm-hmm. you can't have a setting sun in the background and foreground detail that's in complete shadow without doing right. some sort of HDR. Well, in that case, you're also trying to duplicate a little bit more of what your eye would see in the same situation because if you're you're at dusk, which this picture that you just posted shows, and there's a train in the foreground and tracks and whatnot, that's kind of closer to what your eye would see. You wouldn't see black shapes in a blue sky so you would see some the detail thing is that, yeah. that look is a bit 50 50 between reality and what the camera does out of the box because hmm. so bart because sorry go ahead no no carry on uh well we, we are talking about uh the the the, tra- the the train pictures and i guess most of the time when you take a picture the train moves so I guess you always you you never take like an HDR more than one exposure picture, right? Not of a train unless it's parked. <laughs> so when you so I guess so so you tone map from from one picture, and when you take that picture, uh, what is your decision making process for the exposure? I was wondering. My decision making process is to at all costs save the highlights. Uh, because really. Yeah, because, see, remember, we're going for a semi-silhouette look, right? So if okay. I lose some of the shadow, that's part of the design, right? I want it to be dark. I just don't want it to be black. But if I lose the detail, right? So in this case, there's the tiniest hint of a sun disk between those trees. If I were to lose that, I could never get that back. No technique would get that back. So I want to make sure that the highlights are in the raw. At the top of the raw, near the edge of the raw, almost cut off, but not cut off. So I expose high because I like this particular look where I'm, the shadows are still nearly black, but not actually black. Does that make sense? So are you exposing to the right, as we would call it? I am you know that term? exposing to the right. Yeah, to the right, as far as I can get, being absolutely certain I don't cut anything off. As far to the right, right as I can go, but being careful, I don't, whatever I do, don't chop it. Because if I chop it, I'm going to lose... The sky and the sky is right. So really I, nice. So I hear Allison screaming at us about what is exposing to the right mean? <laughs> the right of what? <laughs> I will let you take that one. I will, I'm not as technical about. I you know I've got a technical brain but not a tec- technical mouth. So, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I, I digital sensors tend to capture, let's make this simple, are able to capture a lot more uh, information in the highlight portion of the sensor than in the shadow portion of the sensor. So there's a school of thought saying that if you expose, and um, you tend to overexpose an image a little bit, and when you say expose to the right, we're talking in reference to a histogram. Um, And when you look at a histogram, uh, you know, it's basically a graph of all the light and dark pixels in your picture. To the left on the histogram is a representation of the darker pixels, and to the right is a representation of the lighter pixels. So exposing to the right means taking that histogram and pushing those pixels as close as you can to the right without what's called clipping, meaning losing information in the highlights. But a lot of sensors are very, very... You can actually have a lot of data 
in the right part of the sensor into the into the highlights. People don't know that. People tend to underexpose their images and leave all this lost data, unused data basically, or not even captured data mm. in the in the highlights. And the idea is that well, if you tend to overexpose a little bit without going too far, and then in your raw processing software, you're able to find out there is so much more information in those highlights that you can then work with. And because you can always darken shadows, that's not a problem. But it's it's maintaining that information in the highlights. So that's kind of what exposing to the right means. And I'm yeah, guessing that's what you, you did this picture. In this and you case, also it, avoid oh, sorry, having too much noise in the shadows, right? Sorry, say again? Yeah. And when, when you when you slightly overexpose, so to speak, so you expose to the right, you also avoid having too much uh, noise in the shadows if you when you bring out the details from the shadows. Correct. Because yes, yes yeah. if you if you underexpose a picture and then you try to recover the dark parts of your picture, you'll end up seeing a lot more noise in the picture. So it's yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And. The reason that really matters when you're going to do tone mapping is that the tone mapping algorithm is like a noise multiplier. If you take an image that's a little bit noisy and run it through tone mapping, it'll be a lot noisy when you're done. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you can avoid having too much noise down there in the low end, that is definitely to your advantage because otherwise you're going to be spending time in a noise reduction program just after you're finished with your HDR program. Which you may end up having to do anyway, to be honest, but the less of it you have to do, the better. But it is a bit of a tightrope you're walking because... If you're working at dusk, if you lose the sky detail because you were a little bit too zealous in going to the right, the picture's for the bin. Because a silhouette where the sky is wrong, you, there's nothing left now. So it is definitely, you know, you're one exposed to the right, but you have to be aware that if you take one step too far to the right, you're off the cliff and it's good night and good luck and the show's over. Yeah. Just to, uh, as a point of uh, a note here, first of all, what you're talking about Bart comes a lot with experience. So the more you do this, the more you know your, your camera's capabilities and how far you can expose you can expose to the right without going overboard. Actually, on uh, every for, camera. For people who shoot with Nikon, what I have discovered is that at the point where the blinky start, you may go two more clicks of exposure. Okay. And and you just brought up what I want to talk about. The blinkies. <laughs> the blinkies, the magic blinkies. The magic blinkies are basically when your camera is, uh, you're looking at the picture on the back of your LCD and the highlights are blinking, which is an indication that they're being clipped, meaning you're losing data. I must point out to everybody, though, that those blinkies are based on a JPEG conversion of your image and not the raw data. Yeah. So often people will look at the blinkies because a lot of cameras default to having that on sometimes when they're previewing their photograph. And they're saying, what is the blinkies? Oh, overexposed. And they start to underexpose. The blinkies are the picture that you're looking at in the back of your camera is a JPEG conversion of your raw data. So if you start basing your exposure on the blinkies, and actually also the histogram on your back of your camera also is not exactly representative of your raw file. It's a representation of the JPEG. So it's actually a little bit smaller amount of information that it's giving you. It's good as a guideline, but yeah. um, don't use it as the Bible of your picture making process it's what you, again what you're saying is that with experience you get to understand like okay well now i'm seeing blinkies on my camera i understand that the jpeg and i go okay i can go plus or minus you know two stops or three stops it's it's experience that will that will help you but you need to you need to know that ahead of time if you and start basically to learn that ahead of time is to get it wrong a few times yeah 
to get it wrong a few times, but you know, and bracket and take a lot of exposures and go back to your processing, you know, device and and figure out why these things are doing that. But after time, you'll you'll understand what what the information in the back of your camera is giving you and how to and how to react to it correctly. Yeah, and so trains make a very bad subject for learning this on. Something like, you know, a bridge or a building, that makes a great subject because it will sit still for years. And you can bracket away to your heart's content and learn where the limit is and then go take pictures of something that moves that you get one chance at. Yeah, and you know, the, and your your picture profiles on the back of your camera are also going to affect that. So often when I'm, when I'm photographing RAW and I want to actually see what the RAW files are as close as possible on the back of the camera look like, I make sure I set my my contrast as low as possible, and often a lot of cameras have two different color profiles: uh, Adobe uh, 1998 and sRGB. I set the the profile to Adobe 1998 because that that ends up with a file that's much um, less processed in a way, and will look a little bit closer to what a raw file will look like. So if I'm going to go back and process. Um, and I want to look at the back of my camera and see that that it's close to what the raw file should give me. Not exact, but it's closer. Those are the those are the settings. But a lot of people put their camera profiles on very contrasty and very vivid colors and stuff like that. And especially if you're shooting raw files, you're going to say, well, and, and when you get back to your processing software, my raw files don't look like these these settings I had. So anyway, I just wanted to make that point. Just actually, just one more point on the blinkies and not believing them too much. It's not wrong to have something blown out, right? So when I say two stops from the blinkies, it's two stops from blinkies and something I don't want to lose data in. So if you look at the, 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 the train silhouette, the three headlights on the front of the train, they were blinking like you wouldn't believe because they're spectacularly overexposed. They're train headlights. But there's no detail in those. They are just white blobs. So it doesn't matter if you overexpose them because there's nothing there to capture. So, you know, just because you see a blinky doesn't mean there's a problem. Like, you know, a reflection in the water is allowed to have a few blinkies on the crests of the waves. That's not a problem. That's not something that's wrong. It's perfectly valid for something with no detail to be blown out. And the sun. I mean, maybe not yeah. in the sunset picture, but like the sun in the sky and on a bright sunny day is going to give you a blinky and there's no way, there's really no way to expose to get... Um, yeah, to get the, the sun not to be blinking. If the blinky of the sun is a nice perfect circle, then it's okay. Because there's no detail inside that circle. Where it goes wrong is if the blinky for the sun takes up half your screen. Well, that means you've blown out most of the sky. Yeah. yeah. So th- there's a religion of blinkies that you should avoid, I think is what we're saying. <laughs> okay. So how so, does that re- relate to HDR? No. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, all, it's all part of the mix. So, you know, oh, well, can I add some? Yes, more please, stuff? Do. please yeah. do. So everybody, all of us who have iPhones, right? We all know that Apple has that little HDR function yeah. on it. Right. So how does that work? <laughs> well, as far as I know, the camera is on the iPhone is taking multiple exposures uh, very fast and then combining them into a single picture. Yes. So on, on earlier iPhones, when the HDR function first came out, if you try to take an HDR picture with an iPhone of something moving, the HDR print picture that would come out at the end would generally look terrible because there would be some ghosty thing moving. Hmm. Um, and the exposure might look good, but the image itself would look 
pretty crappy. But the iPhone takes multiple exposures. I think they've gotten that better over time with the with the camera. If they the, take the exposures those multiple are much exposures faster. So quickly, it's amazing. Right, but you'll I, still see it in certain things that move very fast. I mean, I took a, an HDR of a speedboat that was going by me, and I thought, well, look, we may as well give it a go. But this is never going to work. And it managed to not ghost the speedboat. I have no idea by what magic. Mm. That's interesting. There's probably a little magic going on in the processing as well there, too. It, it may so actually be making, realigning it, bits of the image or something. It may be doing some very yeah. cool stuff. Yeah. Are you sure it, it takes three different images, not, not one, and then processes highlights and shadows? I think nope, it's definitely... two. I think it's two. Because the reason I know I it's the more than one, right... If if you set it to HDR mode, it gives you the non-HDR one and it gives you the HDR one. And if you take something moving, even though it doesn't ghost it, if you flick between the two pictures, the moving thing has moved. Yeah. I think the newer cameras on the 6, six series are taking three uh, exposures very fast. Um, I think it's only dealing with two, though. It, it, it somehow... I, again, I may be wrong. I, I, I think I might have read this someplace that... It takes three, it deals only with two, and then it processes them into one shot. So maybe there's some interesting math going on there that it's choosing two of the three images to create the HDR from and then spits out the one uh, normal shot and then, the, uh, and then the HDR shot if you have those settings set. But I know the earlier cameras definitely only took two shots, and you definitely saw that process when you saved the original one. You flick between the two. It looked like a little, little animation when you yeah. flick between them. But, yeah, I, and I wanted to get something else in here, if I can, uh, which is related. Um, on many of the DSLR cameras and the, and the uh, um, mirrorless cameras, a lot of them have a sort of built-in HDR function uh, in them. Uh, Nikon has got what is called active D-lighting. Oh, yeah. Actually quite good. Right. Uh, yeah, and Fuji has got something called DR one hundred to four hundred percent. Canon's got something called Auto Lighting Optimizer, and those are sort of tone mapping uh, built into the uh, cameras when you take a picture. And again, what they're doing is something similar to what you were doing in your processing. Bart mm-hmm. is it is uh, when you have these settings turned on your camera. What they're going to do is they're going to reprocess the raw picture that you take in the camera and create a JPEG that will have an extended, quote-unquote, dynamic range in the shot based on one single image. Um, one of the things it does is that it will, like on the, uh, let's do the active uh, D-lighting on Nikons, you have different settings. And basically, you can set it to the highest setting. And what it's going to do, especially with a very high contrast picture, is going to process that raw file and it's going to, underexpose some of the highlights and overexpose some of the shadows and spit out a JPEG, which will have, you know, some more detail in both the highlights and, and shadows. Uh, it's a feature that many cameras have, and it's only for the JPEGs that are spit out of the camera. The raw files don't, aren't tagged with this information because it, there's no point to it. Um, yeah. Although I think with the Nikon, the Nikon active D-lighting, it, used to be tagged for Nikon's RAW processor. So if you loaded your Nikon RAW files into Nikon's RAW processor, it would see the metadata that there was an active D-lighting and then set some of the settings in the RAW processor to simulate you know, that D-lighting. 
Um, Fuji has something called DR, which is the same thing, dynamic range, and it does the same thing. It, it reprocesses the raw file, depending on what you're saying, and Canon's got the same thing. I use, when you asked me at the beginning if I do HDR, mm-hmm. I don't really, because I don't shoot a lot of stuff that, that really requires HDR, but a lot of my street photography, um, I do have my my Fuji set up with a dynamic range setting uh, to create an HDR processed or HDR style processed JPEG file, mainly because I like my JPEGs that come out of my Fuji camera. They're some of the most beautiful files I've ever seen from any camera. Um, And it was unusual for me to say that about JPEGs because I'm often a raw guy. But also I'm often shooting in very contrasty situations and I'm shooting people's faces and I often want to have that option of being able to have the image have detail uh, in the shadows sometimes. So I often set my camera up with a dynamic range setting so that I've got that option later when I'm processing the file. Usually I process the file on my camera, by the way, because it's the Fuji cameras, X cameras have really good raw processing. But it gives me that option in case I want to have an image where there's shadow and I want detail in the person's face. I can I can process the raw file and and have that detail. If I don't, I reprocess it in such a way that I don't have the detail and I let the shadows block up, which I was sort of talking to you about before. It not being a problem, it's a creative decision. Do I want detail in the shadows or do I want black shadows? You know. Yeah. So anyway, There's yeah, creative reasons to, to want both. So that that's why photography is an art. So anyway, I want to make sure I got that in because a lot of people might be looking at their cameras and they're like, what is this feature? You know, it can be very useful. It can also be really terrible sometimes. Like you may not like the look of it. Um, and unless you have a camera that can reprocess the raw files, if you're only shooting JPEGs, you're kind of stuck with what you get and you might not like it. So another good reason to shoot raw and JPEGs if you're going to if you're gonna, uh, go for JPEGs in the end result, it's not bad to have the raw files to be able to process them again. But I wanted to make sure everybody knew that because it's it's built into most cameras. Yeah, and they're getting the automatic algorithms, like the ones in the iPhone and like the ones in the Nikon's. They're all they're getting ever better. They're better, and they're also different from each other too. Like I noticed the active D lighting in my Nikon D seven thousand looks way different than the output from the uh, from my Fuji camera. So, and I also yeah. think that the technology that you know the the JPEG compression got much better because I remember uh, my old DSLR I think was my my first DSLR was Nikon D90. I remember that I you know editing shadows or highlights in uh, JPEGs that came out of that camera. I was not I was not let's say a pleasant result. But when I edit the JPEGs from my D8, D610 right now, these JPEGs, they have a lot of details in shadows and, uh, and highlights. So I think also the, the technology in, in terms of you know, s- saving information in the JPEG files, it also has changed uh, in the recent years. Yeah, it's, JPEGs don't tend to come out as icky looking as they once did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not sure what other topics people want to bring to the table, but something I want to make sure to sneak in is just a few, two practical tips for if you decide to go down this either 
full HDR and then tone mapping the, the the results, or just tone mapping a single raw using you know a, sort of a, a a a true tone mapping process like you get from one of the HDR apps. Like uh, oh, can't remember the name of the one I use now. Ah, um, oh Jesus, help me here. What's Photomatics? Photomatics. Thank you. The most famous one of all. <laughs> yes, uh, because if it can. It can be a bit challenging to get into those, so I just have two sort of practical tips that might help you get. It. Sorry, if you're if you like the more naturalistic look, then I have two tips that may help you get more naturalistic images. If you don't want the naturalistic look, these tips are not for you. Um, but they're the two sort of lessons I've learned over time that I, I, I definitely want to share. So, the first of them is that when you have an image that has a mix of light and shadow, you have a mix of white balances. And the HD, the tone mapping process, one of its advantages, one of its features is that it restores color in the shadows that would have been lost. But that color is in the wrong, is, or sorry, that color is in a different white balance to the color in the rest of the image, which means that your shadows tend to go very, very blue. And if you don't do something to counteract that fact, what you will end up with is pictures with an orange sky and blue things in the shadow. That looks really quite horrible, not naturalistic at all. So my approach to that is to brush in a reduction in the blue channel on just the parts of the image that are in shadow. So that your blue sky stays blue, but you take out 50% of the blue in the stuff that's in shade, and then it doesn't have that nasty, horrible blue cast, and you get back to more naturalistic colors. So that's, that's the first tip. And then the second thing I very often do is I I process the image without tone mapping it to make all of the bits that are not in shadow look nice, just like any other image. And then I tone map the image and only worry about making the shadows look nice. And then I bring the two images into Photoshop and do a layer mask on them and only use the HDR for the shadows because the tone mapping process and a clear, solid blue sky are not friends of each other. I, it is nearly impossible to get a solid blue sky to come out without looking blotchy on an HDR process because it's going to be lightening and darkening all sorts of stuff based on the trees that are close to it and whatnot. So the only way to get around that is to just not take the blue sky from the HDR. So I'm going to stick a third image into the show notes, which is an example of this, which is an image that's half an HDR and half not an HDR. That makes sense. So basically, it's two people jogging along a canal on a sunny evening. Again, a lot of my shots that are HDRs are taken in the evening. And the bottom, a triangle in the lower is sort of the, the a triangle on the left of the image is HDR and two thirds of the image is not, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Okay. Phew. <laughs> yes. Because that blue sky that you see in that V in the middle of that photo, there is no way to do an HDR that I have discovered to make that blue sky stay even. Because the tone mapping process will not... It's just, it just solid, solid things don't come out well. Really don't come out well. The effect that you're talking about, I often see as well in um, real estate photographs of when, when they're showing off the interiors of you know, an apartment that's for sale. And the photographer, the real estate photographer, will go there and do multiple exposures of the inside and the outside and then Photoshop them together so that the picture shows both the, uh, the inside of the, um, the house and the view that, uh, that the apartment has. Yeah, and a composite and is much that. better for that because if you try to tone map that as one 
as one shot, the walls being solid in color would, would start to have all sorts of horrible effects. Yeah, that effect of like there's like a halo around where the highlights are yeah. uh, is is one of those signatures of, of I, I think, not well, poorly made HDR, just not thought out. Yeah. Um, unless it's being used for a creative effect, but often it's if it's not, it's it's a it's a halo that the is right. I think it's usually right next to the highlights. The yeah. Picture. What can also happen is if you like in the case of the the V in this example photo in the show notes, that what would happen is that there would be no you know the, there'd be no horrible ghosting around the edges of the trees if you do the process right. But the problem is that that spot of sky would have a dark inner V and then a brighter outer V to some extent. Like it, it may not be dramatic, but it will never be zero. You get what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I don't like, I don't like unintended side effects. So I, I will go out of my way to have the best of both worlds. And I will very often do a composite image. So have your cake and eat it by processing it. Yeah. Yes, and mushing them together. So, does anyone else have any anything else they want to throw into the cauldron? There, I've sort of said all the things I wanted to be sure I said. Um, I mean, it's a fairly well, broad topic, well, so feel free to derail, you know, to change course completely. Don't don't feel constrained. Maybe it's maybe it's useful to talk about the creative use of it uh, in some way, or, or again to what we were talking about before at the beginning when you were saying the shadows being a problem, and you know. Often, what is the solution? What is the solution that HDR is giving us? And is it? Uh, how does it work with the, the creative vision that you have? Yeah, so I guess if we can just touch into that a little bit because we're talking a lot of technical stuff now. But like, sure. someone's going to listen to this. Like, well, why do I want to use HDR? Do I want to use it just because it's HDR? And like, no, you don't want to just use it. You don't want to use any technique just because it's a technique. So why do we? Why, why do we use this? And why do we not use it? Why, why will be times where... Actually, that's what I kind of want to talk about. Mm-hmm. I posted up a couple of shots from my Instagram account where I like the shadows to go black. You know? Okay. Uh, both in color and black and white sometimes. I mean, some people say, well, you got to have every single tone in your picture. It's like, no, you don't. We're not all Ansel Adams, so I don't need to have... Well, every Adams single didn't tone. have every tone. Ansel Adams often no. with very dramatic shots with those. Right, know. with very yes, but you know what I mean. Like that that idea of that everything there has to be a lot of information in your picture. And it's like no, it doesn't have to be a lot of information. Feel free to block up your shadows. Feel free to, like you said before, have blinky highlights. To, you know, if it works for the shot. But what it, I you know I think people get hooked on a phrase in HDR. And I got to do HDR. I got to do HDR. That's what the thing I, I have to do. And you know, I take this picture and it's a, it's a landscape, so I have to take three, you know, three versions of it in different exposures, so I can make an HDR of it. And I'm like, well, no, you don't have to. You have to think this out ahead of time, what you want to do. There's no harm in, you know, if you're doing a landscape, taking three exposures because you're there. Why not? But the end result is doesn't have to always be that you have to see every single color or every single black and white tone in the picture. It's good to have blacks. It's good to have whites um, that are off the scale. Yeah, so I just you know wanted maybe Conrad. I don't know what you what you're using HDR for or. Well, my my process first of all it starts at you know looking at the scene and and first getting the composition, and if I think and I look at the scene and I and I think I have you know lots of shadows or 
lots of highlights and I know that I will not be able to get enough information in one image, only then I make a conscious decision to, to shoot, you know, more than one exposure and to bracket the image. But it's never, as you said, it's never about, you know, oh, today I take my camera and I will shoot HDR. Uh, no, that in my case, it doesn't start with that. It's, it's quite, quite the opposite. Um, and sometimes, I, even when I shoot, when I decide to shoot more than one image, so to bracket, um, I quite often I just you know I go go back to my computer, I upload the, the images to to my Lightroom catalog, and I decide sometimes that I really don't need to make an HDR out of the three images. I can easily use. Uh, one of the exposures and just work a bit with the highlights and shadows uh, sliders in the in the Lightroom. So you know, even if I shoot, if I end up shooting more than one uh, image and to bracket the scene, I sometimes use. I, I think even more than fifty percent of the time, I sometimes use uh, just one image and I end up using one image uh, to create the, the final product. Because the raw the raw has so much data in it that you can you can really do a lot with it absolutely or and you know also as as we discussed uh what you see in the back of your camera does not necessarily uh give the the precise information that you will see on your uh, monitor at home and you know the camera tells me oh there's lots of shadows and then i look at the image and there are there are lots of actually there's not so many shadows and even if there are i can still see uh the details in the image um, just for the show notes, um, I'm going to have a few examples here from Antonio of intentionally blocking up the shadows. I just want to say that the the, the one of the lady with the pink uh, outfit uh, is just superb, and that photo just would make an awful HDR. Like that, that would be like right. such a waste of an image to go and pull detail out of that background. Like, why would you right? Because it would just it would distract from seeing her. I mean, there was there was more than enough garbage back there i probably should have darkened it a little bit more but i didn't want to make it look too artificial uh darkened but i did darken that shot to lose some of the details that helped bring her out have her step out but i can and i could see people you know then if you looked at your histogram when you were taking this picture or even when you were processing it like wow it's you know i'm crushing the blacks you know i'm i'm uh you know there's no detail there that's not good my instructor said the book said you know <laughs> the, the lightroom book said you can't do that you have to have you know when you're when you're moving your levels, you got to make sure they're on this side and on that side, and you know that's not the point. The point is to create. You know, the end result is what is the what is your vision? What is your voice? What are you trying to give voice to in the image? And all this stuff works to 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 do that for. So if HDR is going to work, or if you can bring out detail in the shadows, if that's going to help the picture, then that's what you do. You know. I think at this point, you know, unless you're doing those over-the-board HDR things, which I think, you know, people are kind of done with generally, but, you know, some people still do it really well, and I think it looks ethereal and fantasy-wise. But It can give it, a think, very pleasant, dreamy look if that's what you want. Yeah, I mean, it also, actually, that effect looks like, um, I don't know if you remember the days of light painting, um, but there was a device a while back called the uh, Hose Master. And basically, you know, you set up a camera in a dark room or a studio, and you walked around with this thing, and you you, you painted 
the you get a wand that that had light on it, and mm. you sort of went over your subject with this wand, and the camera would record it over time, and you were dressed in black, so you wouldn't be uh, exposed, and it would create kind of the same look. It was a very similar look to HDR. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, like, okay, that's nice, and that works for these kind of subjects, but, you know, it doesn't work for everything, and we don't want to, you know, see it all the time, and, and not necessarily want to bring to the attention that the pro- that the process is HDR because who really cares? The picture is the picture, right? You know that's what we're that's what we're selling here. You don't you don't go on a, you don't tell your client, well, you know you're paying five hundred dollars picture because I did HDR on it. And they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, and also uh, another one I want to draw people's attention to that I'll pop into the show notes as well is your example of the camera built in HDR in uh, Greenwood Cemetery. So you have a backlit mm-hmm. stone monument with on grass so the shadow of the monument is covering part of the grass and the monument itself is backlit so there is texture and detail in the stone and there's texture and detail in the grass and they have been retained by that camera's built-in feature very realistically and very beautifully right i tried to keep the shadows there because you know it's it's also about the shadows but i wanted to see these this bit of grass and and all the the marble um texture so that was a that was definitely a choice made on purpose. And it was nice that the camera did a good job with it built in. I mean, it didn't have to really go back and pro- reprocess it. So it That's the kind helpful. of effect that I, you know, I, I would have spent a lot of time and effort reproducing by tone mapping you know, in the days before cameras could do it. I mean, if I got that out of uh, after all my work, I'd be delighted with it. That is yeah. exactly the look yeah. I want. So just, so you, you know, you're talking about the artistic elements of it. So... What HDR is really good at is texture. Texture is HDR's friend. So if you're looking at an image going, but I want that texture to, to, to be supercharged, then the HDR process, the tone mapping process, is a really good way to achieve that. Conversely, if you do not want texture, HDR is probably the worst thing you could ever do. Like, you know, if you want to take a flattering photograph of a pretty young girl then the last thing you want to do is use an HDR process to find <laughs> every blemish that there conceivably might be and make it a hundred times more obvious. Like that, that, that would be a case of not using it artistically appropriately. And Although thing, I've seen... No, it's okay. sorry. I just wanted to say I've seen that effect on someone who had a lot of wrinkles. You know, like an old guy. I mean, I kind of see that all... That's, I think, overdone as well. But just because it's overdone doesn't mean you should give it a shot. Yeah. But, you know the HDR effect works really well with textured skin when you want to actually show off all that stuff. Yeah. So again, if you want to highlight texture, then HDR, the HDR process is a tool you should consider using because it can do that. And the other thing that can be very, that can be fun is maybe you want a little bit of ghosting. Maybe what you're after is that dreamy look. And the fact that the HDR process will by its nature, create a little bit of ghosting might actually be a feature instead of a bug. And so to that effect, I want to throw in the most insane HDR I ever took and shared on Flickr. So the, the, this, this, this is a shot into the sun with the seed heads of dandelions all along the canal being backlit by the sun. And the HDR has had the effect of making them glow a little. And to me, that captures a sort of a magic. That it's, it's, it's not a realistic shot. It's a dreamy shot, but it. Like it, it felt a bit dreamy, actually. You know that sort of red sunset with the with all those seed heads being backlit, and so 
that captures the feeling of that place and time rather than the reality of that place and time. If that makes That makes perfect sense. So that that is the most nuts I've ever gotten. When I will not pretend <laughs> that is even slightly realistic because it's not. It completely isn't. It's completely over the top and overcooked. But I like it. When when you mentioned texture being uh, an after result of HDR, I also realized that when I did work for Brooklyn Botanic Garden, part of uh, I was doing their calendar. Part of what I was trying to get. Uh, in the pictures for the calendars, the textures of the place, because the, there are so many different textures at a botanic garden. And I did not do, I, I sometimes did HDR because I had that problem with, there's a lot of trees and there's a lot of sunlight and I had to go at certain times of the day to shoot. And so I needed to get the exposure in both, both you know, the highlights and the shadows. So I would take multiple exposures, uh, especially like under a trellis, you know, full of like... Um, Lavender, not lavender. Um, what is the purple thing that smells nice in spring? Begins that with an L. Sounds awfully like lavender, but no, it's not. La- anyway, um, <laughs> I'll see if I can find a picture from uh, from Flickr and post it to the notes so you can see it. But you know, a trellis, and there's underneath, and I want to see all the details, and there's all the sunlight, and so I would do the the, the multiple exposures so I could get both both uh, in there but in order to bring up the contrast a little bit I mean the uh, texture a little bit um, I would use uh, tonal contrast tools which also simulate a little bit of the effect that you see in in HDR in which case just you're affecting the uh, tonal contrast of mid-tone parts of the picture and you can Mm -hmm. get that effect and one of the best tools this is a great segue but one of the best tools for doing that was the Nick filters, and now that Google owns the Nick filter plugins for Photoshop and uh, and Lightroom, they're now giving away for free. Yes, um, and they have all these different uh, black and white conversion and uh, the Silver Effects Pro and uh, Color Effects Pro, and those have a lot of these tone mapping style processing that you can do to an image that's not exactly. HDR, but will create some of the same effects. Even the the effect that you were showing with your dandelions, you can simulate that in uh, using these uh, using the Nick filters. So, as of today or a few days ago, they are free. So, go go get them. Cool. Conrad, did you want to jump in with something there? Yes, I thank you for reminding me. I, I have a tip for, for those using Lightroom, especially the, the most recent version with uh, built-in HDR. If, for example, if you, uh, if you shoot just one image of a scene and then you come back to your computer and you decide that you can't pull details only with the highlights, highlights and shadows slider, there is a way for getting more details and actually making a, an HDR image. Because for some reason, even if you um, pull the, sli- the highlight slider, slider to the left, uh, all the way to the left, uh, and it doesn't, uh, is, and by using this slider, you still don't get uh, enough information, the highlights, there is a chance that if you slide or if you that when you move the exposure slider to the left, this information is still there. Uh, 
so what you can do is when you have an image, you work with the exposure slider, uh, either you know slide it to the left if you want to get uh, details in the highlights or slide it to the right when you want to get uh, details from the shadows. And when you get to the point when you have enough details, you can create a virtual copy of that image. Just right-click on the image and create create a virtual copy. Then go back to your original image and, uh, and uh, reset all the settings. And by using the built-in uh, HDR function in the most recent version of Lightroom, you can create an HDR image out of virtual copy and the original image. So this is one way uh, to save uh, an image if you don't have enough information from in shadows or highlights. Cool. Okay, Antonio, you just popped another picture. I'm going to stick into the show notes showing the iPhone doing its HDR chops. Um, yeah, that was the, I think one of the first shots I took with my 6S. Uh, and that was an interesting situation because the backlit from the, these two buildings in, in the uh, Columbus Circle are relatively new and they're backlit by the sun setting and the exposure and that was really difficult because the sun was behind the buildings and the sky was lit up with these puffy clouds but to do a basic exposure I would either get the buildings yeah. or the clouds and the iPhone's built-in um, HDR worked really well in this picture. This is pretty much straight out of the camera. And so that's quite no... a tough test because those buildings have very, very defined square edges. So if the iPhone was going to ghost, yeah. that's where it would yeah. have done it, and it didn't. Yeah. It did, a, it did a fairly decent job with it. And that was nice. it's nice that it's built into that camera. So it works, you know, when you find the right situation, uh, it, it looks natural. And it can be really, really useful to uh, to capture what you want to capture. Yeah, well, it did a really nice job there. That is, yeah, seeing the reflection of the sky against the sky is weird in all the right ways. <laughs> Very cool shot, actually. Thank you. So yeah. I will, that will also be in the show notes for people to go look at. Okay, well, we've been running for quite some time now. I, I wasn't afraid this would be a short show. Um, if there's anything else anyone wants to throw in before we wrap up that we definitely, definitely can't leave out, speak now or forever hold your peace. Uh, no, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, we really didn't cover the software part, right? Not no, really. I guess no. We, we didn't. Probably, Yeah, I guess because we're not a tech show, I guess. Um, I mean, there's a lot of... A lot of- I was going to say, a lot of programs are starting to have this stuff built into them. Uh, even there's filters, you know, to, to simulate this stuff, which I would probably, you know, stay away from. Because yeah, you're really they're just, just simulating. Simu- yeah, they're simulate. going to simulate yeah. the icky effects rather than the power of the tool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although I would say that the uh, the Nick filters, they have some HDR, but because you can be very kind with and gentle with them, you know, it's worth uh, experimenting with. Um, especially because they're free. Yeah, so I guess what we should say about the software is if this discussion has whetted your appetite to the point where you think, you know, I'm going to give this a go, I guess we should sort of mention what tools it is that you might consider having a go with. 
So there's definitely HDR is just a feature that's built into Photoshop. So a lot of people would have Photoshop would have access to HDR that way. Then you have the Nick stuff, which is now free. Um, and then the, the the king of the castle is uh, HDR Soft's um, Photomatics. And then Trey Radcliffe came on the scene recently with a new product called Aurora HDR, which I own but haven't yet played with enough to have an informed opinion about. Um, what else? The samples I've seen from that I have not been overly impressed with. I mean, I thought about buying it too, but... Um... Maybe you'll need to report on that just so I can think well, about it. See, the examples well, I've, I've seen look like the style that um, Trey Radcliffe likes, but it's also what Trey Radcliffe was doing with the program. So my theory is that if I use the program, I'll make it look like I want it to look. But I don't know how true that theory is going to work out to be. Well, I played with that software, but I have it. And, you know, it, you can easily go overboard with images. Uh, it has so many sliders. It gives you so many options. Uh, so if for someone starting with HDR, I, I would say it's quite confusing software. And, and uh, yeah, it's, I, I, don't, I would not recommend uh, Aurora to someone who only starts with HDR because it's way too easy to go overboard with pictures. But I'm really happy with the built-in uh, HDR in Lightroom. It gives really nice and uh, natural result, results. Cool. cool. Okay, any, any other software we should mention? people might want to look at mm. I, I don't know specific hdr making programs other than photomatics yeah. um I, I, that, the, photomatics is kind of the granddaddy of them all i think that's sort of i mean you know photoshop essentially in some sense you know with a raw processor and you're going to do multiple pictures uh, so photoshop's a good i could have sworn photoshop had a full built-in hdr function it, it probably does i don't i don't use it I haven't I used use that it, but function I saw it in the menu. <laughs> it's like I use the raw processor, so if I'm doing an HDR thing, it's you know multiple exposure, and then and then using layer masks to to paint in the uh, uh, the different exposures, which is a really nice way to do you know yeah. I would call it HDR work is is to use multiple exposures and then and then uh, paint in what you need. Yeah, which is yeah that definitely can be very powerful. Um, yeah, assuming you have delineations between the regions that are human friendly yeah but that's a good a good reason for you to buy a tablet and use a um a tablet so that you can brush it and i the part about that i like a lot is that it really gets me it feels like i'm doing something hands-on with an image so you know yeah if you have hard edges you could work really well but if you have soft edges and you just use a brush you can you can do things that look natural it's, it yeah, takes it's, some practice there's some things though that you're just asking to kill yourself which is um you know a bare winter tree where you want to paint the tree but not the sky through it well yeah you could pro- you know if you know enough about photoshop you can probably create a mask just based on the tree and and then use that but that's a bit more advanced than what we're getting into but you could you could do it yeah, yeah, that, that, but that is definitely on the um, advanced end of the spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's, if you already have Photoshop, it's probably something that you could learn uh, fairly easily without actually having to buy another uh, another application. So, yeah. Okay, and any other final thoughts before we call it a show? Yeah, just take it easy on the HDR. <laughs> Less is more. <laughs> Less is more, and, and and really think about why you want to use that. What's the what's the message you're you sending with the picture? 
uh, just like with any effect, you know, everybody goes overboard with every filter and, and whatever. And just as long as it serves the, you know, this is me being philosophical about it, but if it serves the purpose, it, then it's, then it's a very useful thing. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with it. I have no judgments about HDR. I, you know, I have judgments about photographs, you know, whether they work or they don't work, but I don't have any judgments about HDR as a, a way to get to the photograph, you know, like your train picture. Bart, you know, it served the purpose. It's great. And look at the end result. So, um, yeah, I guess my, my final thought is that the reason I like HDR is because I knew what I wanted. I knew the look I wanted and I was never able to get it until I discovered HDR and then I discovered that that was a route to the look I'd always been after. So it's not that I tried to make HDR fit what I wanted. It's that HDR turned out to be a way to get to what I wanted, which is why I like it. So it's, I think it's important to, to have the motivation the right way around. Use HDR because because you because it gets you to where you want to be rather than using HDR because well you want to use HDR. Yeah, and and, and as a uh, I want to just say as a point of reference, we're really trying to 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 get what your eye can see. It's not going to happen. Our eyes have such a wide range. I, I read someplace that we, our eyes have a range of about twenty twenty stops. Um. That's which, plausible, yeah. Our eyes are amazing yeah. things. And the other thing is our brain is between our eyes and our perception. And our brain is all <laughs> sorts of weird stuff as well. Yeah. So, yeah, don't ever think that, you know, I'm not trying to put the, the damper on it, but you're not going to simulate human vision with a, with a photograph uh, at all. So, you know, give that up. But use it, use it creatively and, and have a good time with it. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the takeaway. Yeah, and don't let the haters stop you. Yeah, you know, someone says HDR, like you tell them it's an HDR picture, and they just ignore you, just so, well, you know, too bad for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've taken the attitude <laughs> of just saying it's a picture. It's a photograph. You like it or you don't, that's fine. But I, I have had the bizarre effect where someone's looked at a photo and gone, that's really beautiful, but a camera can't do that, so you did something to it, as if that was <laughs> some sort of crime, and it's like, yeah, I processed it to make it look right. like I, I took the picture. To. I took the picture. I cropped it. Yeah. <laughs> like... It was a very, very strange sort of conversation to have. You know, it's very nice, yeah. and I really, I really like it. But that's that didn't come out of the camera like that. You did something to it, and it's, we're sort of literally wagging your finger. <laughs> I was like, so, yeah, yeah. Stop pixel peeping, please. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay, um, thank you very much, folks. So let me, uh, I was going to say, let's go in reverse order, but I can't remember what order I went around in the first place. Um, oh, actually, just saying, Antonio, you've popped a few more pictures for the show notes into our Skype chat, so I will add some examples from the Botanic Gardens. Yeah, both of those are Botanic Garden shots, yeah. Uh, is there anything in particular you want the listeners to notice in those two photos? Uh, those are just where I was uh, using um, the HDR to be able to capture as much information. But I, I, I want also to pay attention to the textures. Perfect. So Stick a note it, it, it's also about texture. Yeah. And that was my goal when I was uh, photographing there. So it was on purpose. There's a purpose to it. Yes. Okay. So there will be two of those in the show notes for people to admire. And I have to say, I really like the one where you're very low down to the stream. That's. Yeah, I was hanging my camera off of a monopod. <laughs> that was that was interesting. I had my D three hundred hanging on the other end of a monopod 
which was bending very precariously, upside down too. Oh, to lovely! So, how close to getting wet was it? Uh, it was pretty close. It was, it was about an inch or two over the water. Yeah. Well, it worked. It's a really cool point of view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it yeah. Could I'm going to try to dig up. I'm going to try to dig up one more picture of the trellis that I was telling you about. Um, and okay. Well, if you find it, send it I on. Will. I will pop it in the show notes for people to look at. Okay, um, so let us see. Links, Conrad, thank you very much for giving of your time. Um, do you want to remind people where they can find you and your work online? Sure, you can uh, find my website on the conrad.photo. That's K-O-N-R-A-D dot P-H-O-T-O. Excellent. I have to say I am very fond of your new domain. I can say it as well, which is nice. <laughs> Antonio, do you want to remind people about your podcast and other doodads and things? Yeah, I'm uh, at the Switch to Manual podcast, switchtomanual.com podcast at uh, Street Shots podcast with me and my friend uh, Tom. We do uh, twice a month interviews with photographers, and it's all about photography. Photography, photography, photography. Anything about photography. So check us out there. And you can find me personally at my website, amrosario.com, and I'm on Twitter at amrosario, and Instagram at amrosario, and Flickr at amrosario, pretty much amrosario everywhere. And I'm going to work on getting the amrosario.sexy domain. <laughs> Next. You shouldn't have said it out loud until you actually bought it. It's now the whole, you know, all of our listeners are out to get it. No, i got to run out and buy it right now. <laughs> yeah, you've got half an hour while I edit this. <laughs> but anyway, that's where you can get me. Well, and thanks for having me today. Pleasure as always. I'm always delighted when, when people answer my call. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, congratulations on 30 episodes, too. Oh, thank you. I guess that's exactly two and a half years if you could do a monthly show, I think. Yeah. yeah. 24 plus 6 is 30. Yes. Yes, it is. Right. Okay. Um, well, yeah, and congratulations for doing that every month. Yeah, I have a, I, I, I Today is the 26th, so I'm a little bit close to missing my first month ever, but we've made it, so I guess it's okay. Okay, well, I've been your host, Bart Bouchot. You can find me at bartb.ie. You will find the show notes I keep mentioning over at lets-talk.ie. So um, all the pictures we've talked about will be linked from there. Uh, while you happen to be there, there's three large blue buttons under the heading support the show. Please consider supporting the show. And to those of you who do support the show and have supported the show, I thank you very much. It is your support that makes it possible for the show to continue. Well, until next time. Happy snapping! You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hey Siri, I'm looking for a new podcast. How about Three Geeky Ladies? Well, I want to hear about technology. As I said, three geeky ladies. I want to learn about different types of apps and websites that will help me in my day-to-day life. Um, three geeky ladies fits the bill. A podcast that talks about new releases in Apple, like iCloud, Photos, new iPhones and iPads. Oh, and El Capitan is coming out soon, right? As I've been saying, three geeky ladies is what you want. Say, what about the three geeky ladies podcast? That looks like exactly what I want.
Thanks, Siri. Wow, 3D Key Ladies, a technology podcast from a female perspective. Find it on the Stoplight Network. <laughs>